I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 1. Fifty-two chapters, 1,364 verses, 32,982 words, and in computer lingo, 241,209 bytes of information. These are all different ways to describe the book we are going to begin working through together this evening. Jeremiah. And I am curious, I've had some people mention they've never heard somebody preach Jeremiah. If you've sat through a sermon series on the book of Jeremiah, go ahead and put your hand up. I'm curious if anyone has had one, one or two. Okay, so if you look at it from one angle, Jeremiah is actually one of the most popular books in the entire Bible. According to multiple sources that I checked, looking at most searched for verses and most read verses, most popular verses, a verse from Jeremiah is almost always the second most read verse of all time. John 3.16 is always number one, but does anyone have a guess what verse in Jeremiah is number two? Jeremiah 29:11 it goes like this for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord plans for peace and not for calamity and to give you a future and a hope and that verse makes a good refrigerator magnet Jeremiah 29:11 has been embroidered on everything from bible covers to baby onesies and even unbelievers love those words Jeremiah 29:11 may be one of the single most popular verses of all time, but almost everything that comes after Jeremiah 29.11 and almost everything that comes before Jeremiah 29.11 is basically lost to obscurity. Jeremiah as a whole is one of the most intimidating books in the Old Testament, and that is the case for multiple reasons. Here are a few. First, Jeremiah, by word count, is the longest book in the Bible, and that makes it a behemoth to study. Just reading the book of Jeremiah is a commitment, let alone studying it. And there is so much material, it is hard to wrap your arms around it and see how does all this connect to my life and to my godliness today. A second reason Jeremiah is difficult to study and can be intimidating is it's not arranged in chronological order. Jeremiah is notoriously difficult to outline because it jumps all over the place. I once heard a preacher compare it to a scrapbook. Jeremiah is like a patchwork of prophecies and historical accounts kind of brought together and stitched together and jumps from one time period to another. And in our culture, we're used to accounts that are sequential. And if we read Jeremiah that way, expecting it to proceed from A to B to C to D, we're at times going to become confused. Jeremiah is an epic. It spans four decades. And because it isn't chronologically ordered, it's difficult to keep track of what period of time we're in at any given time. And in addition to that, there's a final reason I think Jeremiah can be difficult, even uh, intimidating, challenging to study. When you read Jeremiah, you notice pretty quickly the book is kind of a downer. As popular as that one verse is from chapter 29, Jeremiah as a whole is pretty heavy. It is chapter after chapter 
of warning and judgment. The prophet Jeremiah, the namesake of the book, maybe you've heard, is known as the weeping prophet, and he's called that for good reason. He weeps at the continued unrepentant godlessness of the people of Judah. And that heaviness comes through the book's pages, and that can make it hard to really get into and to read and study. Thankfully, we're in a church where our lead pastor preaches verse by verse through Judges. So we are ready for challenging, heavier books. Praise God. But as an example of the book's tone, listen to Jeremiah 13, 17. It says, But if you will not listen... My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Listen to the burden on Jeremiah's heart in Jeremiah 15, 18. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. In that same chapter, Jeremiah mourns that he was ever even born. So after 40 years, Jeremiah faithfully preaches, and he pleads, and day after day, month after month, year after year, he is faithful, and he sees no progress. By any ministry metric imaginable, he is a failure. And yet, he is an astounding example to us of God's definition of success. Despite the discouraging circumstances, he does exactly what God wants him to do. He remains steadfast and immovable. He abounds in the work of the Lord, knowing that his work is not in vain. So here's the question up front as we begin this journey through the book of Jeremiah. What kept him going? Why did he continue to obey the Lord and not give up in the midst of these trials. And our passage this evening helps answer that question. And we need these rich promises today because the Christian life is no walk in the park. The world around us opposes the gospel and those who believe it in every major area of life, politically, socially, morally, In addition to that, we face trials of various kinds, physical trials that tempt us to discouragement, relational trials that often bring us to tears. And on top of that, we have this daily fight against our flesh. Sometimes we're discouraged as we fight temptations over and over, and we're tempted to just give up and throw in the towel. And sometimes in the Christian life, you have this discouragement, and you just feel, am I accomplishing anything? And to those spiritual ailments, God gives us the antidote of Jeremiah. Jeremiah will show us how to face discouragement, how to fight sin, how to fear the Lord, how to have hope and live faithfully in the midst of a godless world. So as we begin the book, we will see God call Jeremiah to prophetic ministry. And as he does so, God graciously gives Jeremiah rich truths to strengthen his spiritual spine. Promises that Jeremiah and we will need to come back to time and time again in our lives. So look in your copy of God's Word at Jeremiah 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And just so you know up front, I am preaching from a translation called the Legacy Standard Bible. If you have the NASB, it's very similar to that. It's also close to the ESV, but if you notice some differences in wording, that is why. So Jeremiah 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, 
of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And it came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord Yahweh, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But Yahweh said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. Then Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to cause to perish and to pull down, to build and to plant. So from Jeremiah 1, verses 1 through 10, we will see three promises found in Jeremiah's call so that you will believe God's promises to you today. Here are the three promises we will see. First, God's plan. Second, God's presence. And third, God's prophetic word. We'll begin with God's plan in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, we briefly meet Jeremiah, but we don't learn much about him. We're told he's from a family of priests, and he lived in a small town called Anathoth, which is about three miles from Jerusalem, and part of the tribe of Benjamin. And verses 2 and 3 then gives us a sweeping overview of the historical setting of his ministry. And this might seem like a bunch of random historical data. But it's, incredible, it's incredibly helpful to us to have this up front. Remember I mentioned earlier that Jeremiah jumps around. It goes back and forth in terms of time. Well, verses 2 and 3 gives us the historical flow of the book up front. It's kind of like a map that orients us to where we're going. So verse 2 tells us when the Lord first called Jeremiah to his prophetic ministry, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Okay, so get ready, because I'm going to give you some dates to help orient us in the book. Josiah becomes king of Judah in 640 B.C. 640 B.C. So that places the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry at 627 B.C., 13 years into Josiah's reign. So by the time we get to Jeremiah, Israel has split into the northern kingdom, Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah has had multiple kings, and Josiah was a rare king because in Judah, he was one of the only godly kings the nation ever had. Under Josiah, the nation experiences a spiritual revival, which is described in 2 Kings 22. Josiah's rule ends when he dies in 609 BC, and for all intents and purposes, the revival dies with him. It was genuine in the heart of Josiah, but not in the hearts of most of the people. And verse 3 continues, And it came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now Jehoiakim, 
a son of Josiah, reigns from 609 to 597 B.C. So that second king is 609 to 597 B.C. But unlike his father, Jehoiakim does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. He rebels against God and his word. And the final king in the list, Zedekiah, also a son of Josiah, reigns from 597 to 586. Zedekiah is 597 to 586 B.C. And his godless reign ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and exile by Babylon. Okay, deep breath. A lot of historical information. When we pull it all together, Jeremiah's ministry stretches from 627 to 586 B.C. During those 40-plus years, he will see a national revival. He will watch the flames of that revival flicker away and die. He will live through the reign of multiple kings, warn the nation of coming judgment, then ultimately watch that judgment fall upon Jerusalem as the city collapses before his very eyes. And God's plans and purposes will place him right smack in the middle of all of it. The Lord will have Jeremiah born and call him in the right place at the right time, in the midst of the nation of Judah as it comes apart at the seams. And against this backdrop, God's perfect plan for Jeremiah will play out. His life, his ministry, his circumstances, the historical moment in which he lives, it is all by divine appointment according to God's plan. So as we get started, we ask ourselves this question, do you think of your life that way? Do you think of your life in those terms? Your life is not a series of haphazard random events. Wherever you are and whatever you do, God has placed you in that circumstance. In this specific historical moment for his glory. God has given you the life you have right now to serve him. God in his perfect plan doesn't have us alive in Judah in the 600s BC. He has us here, now, at this time, according to his gracious plan for you, just like he had for Jeremiah then. And verse 4 continues, Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. Notice God's plan and call on Jeremiah's life began before the prophet was even born. The word formed is the same word found in Genesis 2, 7, when, when God forms Adam out of the dust and makes him a living being. It's like a potter shapes a lump of clay. The Lord forms and shapes Jeremiah in the womb. And before that process even began, before Jeremiah made a single choice, before any of the chaos that is coming, verse 5 says, I knew you. Three simple words. One basic sentence. This is the kind of sentence you teach someone who is just starting to learn English. Subject, I. Verb, new. Object, you. But this simple sentence is packed with astounding truths about our God and his plan and his love for his people. The subject, the one acting, is the Lord. 
Yahweh. God is not a passive bystander responding to history. He is its active agent. He is the one planning, orchestrating, and driving Jeremiah's life and call and ministry. It begins with God in eternity past, planning all things according to the counsel of his will. And Jeremiah's call was not based on anything impressive in and of himself, but on the grace and love of God. And the Lord says, I knew. That, that verb doesn't refer merely to intellectual knowledge or facts, so of course we know God's knowledge is inexhaustible. More than that, it, it's a word that speaks of personal knowledge, intimate knowledge. God uses this, this word about Israel in Amos 3 verse 2, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. God is aware of all the nations of the earth, but he doesn't know them the way he chooses to know his chosen people, Israel. And do not miss what, or we should say who, God knows in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. The emphasis is not that God knows a fact, but that God knows a person. God says to Jeremiah at the outset, I knew you. God doesn't merely know about Jeremiah before he was formed in the womb. He knew Jeremiah himself, meaning the love and intimate knowledge of God was set upon the prophet before the prophet even existed. Up front, this is a way of telling Jeremiah, before you did anything, I loved you. I cared for you. And I am committed to you. Verse 5 continues, and before you came from the womb, before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. So God not only knows Jeremiah, but also sets him apart for a specific task before he was even born. To set apart is to consecrate. It means to set aside for a particular purpose. So it's kind of like if, if you're trying to do a project around the house, you, half the battle is having the right tool. The, the tool that's designed for a specific situation and a, and a specific purpose, for a specific task. That's the word God uses here. I have set you apart. I have designed you for a specific role. And God plans, according to his own perfect wisdom, to set Jeremiah apart before he is even born for himself, to set him apart from the world, and to set him apart for a specific task. So note here the kindness and grace of God in your life. Jesus says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. This gracious Savior knows us and graciously calls us to himself. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Romans 8, 29 encourages all believers with the reality that from eternity past, God foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are saved according to God's plan, by God's initiative, through God's wondrous grace. And when the difficulties and the trials come, and they will, our lives must be anchored to this precious promise. If God knew us and loved us before the foundation of the world, then will he not love me now? Will he abandon me now. And as a believer, aren't you grateful this is what God has done in your life? That your salvation is not dependent on you and not dependent on your works. That when you could do nothing to get to God, he has come and done everything to come to us. And just as God set Jeremiah apart, he sets apart his children today. 
Because we're set apart, we're not to be ensnared by the world's sins. We're not to be entrapped by the world's philosophies or enamored with the world's ways. Like Jeremiah, we are set apart, distinct from the world in which we live, set apart to serve him, placed by God's perfect plan in this country at this time to call others to be reconciled to God and to be salt and light to the world, to the glory of God. So God knew Jeremiah, and God set Jeremiah apart before he was born. And the final line in verse 5 describes the exact task God planned for Jeremiah. Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah is specifically appointed to be a prophet. And when we think of prophecy, we think about predicting the future. So by implication, a prophet is somebody who predicts what's going to happen. And that, that is certainly part of it. That's part of what he will do and what many of the prophets do. But more than that, a prophet was one who spoke on behalf of God. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, and then the prophet then proclaims or preaches that message to the people. And Jeremiah's prophetic ministry will not merely be for the people of Israel or Judah. Notice carefully at the end of verse 5. It says his ministry, his prophetic ministry, will be to the nations. In what sense is Jeremiah a prophet to the nations? As we will see, he's primarily focused on Judah, leading up to the, the destruction of Jerusalem, but his ministry goes far beyond that. If you want a very simple outline in your mind of the book, Jeremiah 2 through 45 is his ministry to Judah, and then Jeremiah 46 through 51 is his ministry to the nations. 2 through 45 focuses on Judah, 46 through 51 focuses on the nations. He will preach in his prophetic ministry to nations ranging from Egypt and Moab to Edom and Babylon. But notice again the emphasis on God's plan and on God's action. I have given you as a prophet. So we aren't prophets like Jeremiah today. But what in God's perfect plan has he given you? What has he given you to do? He has given you your spouse, your job, your spiritual gifts, your school or friends, the people around you who you can share the gospel with. If you are alive, you have something in common with Jeremiah. You are given everything you have at the time you have it to serve and make much of God, to take the gospel to those around you and to the nations in any way that you can. And that brings us to our second heading, God's presence. God's presence. So God calls him to be a prophet, and Jeremiah is reluctant to say the least. He is a deer in headlights. He is overwhelmed. Look at verse 6. Then I said, so this is Jeremiah speaking, Then I said, Alas, Lord Yahweh, behold, I don't know how to speak because I am a youth. God calls him to be a prophet, and he basically cries out in response, I'm overwhelmed. I'm confused. I don't know how to do this. But notice Jeremiah, even as he is clearly rattled, notice how he addresses God. Lord Yahweh, sovereign king, one who has the right to rule and reign over the nations and over me. So even as Jeremiah struggles with this call, he doesn't lose sight of who God is. This is the right way to approach the Lord when you are called to something and you feel overwhelmed. Start here. Oh Lord, the one who rules, sovereign king, 
But, but why is he still, even though he knows that and he's trusting in that, he's still reluctant and overwhelmed. Why? He, he continues, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Now, the word youth covers a very broad age range. That, that word youth is used to refer to infants, and it's used to refer to young men. So we don't know exactly how old Jeremiah is when the Lord calls him, but most likely is in, he's in his late teens, maybe early 20s. Now, how would you respond if God called you to be a prophet to the nations when you are a teenager? He tells God, I'm too young. I don't have any experience. I'm not a gifted speaker. I can't preach. Jeremiah's assessment of himself is he just isn't gifted enough to do what God says. And think of it from his perspective. If Jeremiah is young and he goes out to preach, then who is likely going to use his age against him? His audience. Everyone he's preaching to. We can imagine the objections being thrown his way and in his face as he declares the word. Who is this boy? He's, he's not even a good speaker. He has no life experience. Who is he to rebuke us? I've studied the law longer than he's been alive. That's what he knows he's going to be facing. Discouragement can easily come into our lives when we focus solely on our own shortcomings. What we can't do. So has the Lord ever put you in a situation or called you to do something and you think to yourself, I just... I just don't think I can do this. I'm not qualified for this. I'm not capable of this. This goes outside of my gifting. And you think about all the reasons you aren't qualified or gifted. It could be serving the Lord in a certain way. Could be sharing the gospel with somebody in your life. It could be honoring Christ among friends or at your school. Maybe it's a ministry that you have that you feel like anyone but you would be better at. I still remember one of the first times I was told I was going to preach. And by the way, I said that right. I was told I was going to preach. I I met with um, one of my pastors, and he just told me, look, you're preaching on this Sunday. And he gave me the Sunday that it was coming. And my heart went like this. It's just this moment of like, Lord, I'm ill-equipped. I'm unqualified. Anyone but me. I can't do this. And it is good to be humble, and it is good to be aware of your own weaknesses and your own inability apart from the Lord. But don't be so focused on yourself that you miss God. When you feel inadequate, don't be driven to despair. Be driven to your knees. There is a godly way and an ungodly way to handle our doubts and concerns. Here is the ungodly way. Become self-absorbed, focus only on what you can or can't do, or your accomplishments or lack thereof. Focus exclusively on that, and this will easily lead you to discouragement and even depression. Here is a more godly way. Allow your shortcomings or your perceived shortcomings to drive you to lean harder on the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.5 Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And that's basically what God says to Jeremiah in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. But Yahweh said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, 
declares Yahweh. Don't you love how the Lord just brushes Jeremiah's concerns aside? Lord, I'm young, and God basically says, yeah, 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 that doesn't matter. I know that you're young. I'm the one calling you. What matters is you will go where I tell you to go, and you will do what I tell you to do, and I will be with you every step of the way. God doesn't need Jeremiah's eloquence or experience. He doesn't deny Jeremiah is young. He just says, that's not relevant here. Just know I'm with you and obey me. Remember God is with you and obey him. It seems so basic, but it is a great way to trust in the Lord. Just obey God. Don't come up with all the reasons it isn't practical. Don't weigh the pros and cons of not doing what he says. Read his word. Obey him. Trust him with what comes next. Like Jeremiah, we often are tempted to fear the future. We fear the unknown or something that could happen. We fear other people. As we serve the Lord, we fear offending others or maybe being at odds with the world or being looked down on by others. And when we doubt and fear, that's when we need to remember what God tells Jeremiah here. I am with you, and I will deliver you. God restates this promise to Jeremiah in more detail in Jeremiah 1, verses 18 and 19. Look there, Jeremiah 1, beginning in verse 18. Now behold, I have given you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes and to its priests and to the people of the land. And they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. It's like God's divine body armor surrounded Jeremiah. And our situation is not the exact same as his, but has God changed? Ask yourself this, does God still call his people to obey him, to trust him, and then promise to be with us today? Listen to the promise of God's presence given to believers in Hebrews 13. This is Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Or Matthew 28, 20, Jesus commands his followers to make disciples of the nations, very similar to Jeremiah, he's being told he will be a prophet to the nations. Jesus says to his disciples, go to the nations and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord tells his people continually in his word exactly what he tells Jeremiah. Focus on me. Trust me. I am with you. So we've seen God's plan. We've seen God's presence and his promise to be with his people. And that brings us to our final heading for this evening, God's prophetic word. God's prophetic word. In the Old Testament, it was common uh, to, to call a prophet to ministry with some sort of dream or vision. We see the same thing with Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 and with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And that's what we have here in Jeremiah chapter 1. We have this, this 
prophetic calling ceremony, if you will. So we get to peer in on Jeremiah's personal, private initiation into ministry. So look at verse 9. Then Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, God is spirit, so we know he doesn't have a physical hand, but he frequently uses human language to describe himself. So God's hand in scripture is a sign of his power, of his authority. So God's hand touching Jeremiah's mouth demonstrates that God's power, his authority, will not be found in Jeremiah's age or his ability or his charisma. It will come from his words. It will come from God placing his words in the prophet's mouth. Jeremiah doesn't need to worry about what to say because God will give it to him when he needs it. It brings to mind Deuteronomy 18.18. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And Jeremiah finds great comfort in this later in his ministry. I read earlier from Jeremiah 15 where he's crying out, and I mentioned that he says he wishes he was never born. After that cry of his heart, he says these words in Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me joy and gladness in my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. When Jeremiah struggles, he knows everything I have is the word of God. And he depends on it in his life and in his ministry. So what will God do with his word through Jeremiah? Verse 10, see, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. Jeremiah is no politician, but his preaching will have far-reaching political implications. God's reign covers all nations and peoples, not just Judah. And here he appoints a reluctant prophet to wield the sword of the word against the nations of the world. And God promises his word through the prophet will accomplish two things in verse 10. Jeremiah will tear down and Jeremiah will build up. He will declare judgment and blessing. With his word, he will declare ruin and restoration. God describes how Jeremiah will speak words of judgment or of ruin in the middle of verse 10. He says that the word will be to uproot and to tear down, to cause to perish and to pull down. So God's word through Jeremiah will be like a gardener who rips up dead plants and weeds all the way down to the root. Tear down and pull down picture something demolished. It's like a building getting gutted all the way to the studs. Like a surgeon, the word of God will need to cut before it can heal. He will declare to Judah and to the nations time and time again, if you continue in your sin, I will tear you down. I will reduce you to rubble, ruin. But he will also speak words of blessing, of encouragement, and of hope. The end of verse 10 says, to build and to plant. So before an architect can build, anything old that's in the way must be torn down and removed. 
before a, car, a farmer can plant, the soil needs to be prepared. But once it is prepared, it's ready for new crops to be planted so they can grow. So yes, as we will see, Jeremiah is laced through with warnings of judgment. But in the midst of these warnings, we are going to see astounding promises of hope. Jeremiah's message will be like a wrecking ball and a construction crew. It will not merely destroy, but it will build. God commissions him to announce not only exile, but restoration. Promises of changed hearts. Promises of a new covenant that will bring blessing both to Judah and the nations. So to encourage Jeremiah before it all begins, God promises to put his prophetic word in his mouth. And when we read scenes like this, they're so spectacular and they're so almost otherworldly, the idea of God stretching out his hand, he's putting something in his mouth, and we easily think like, wow, that would be nice. I mean, no, no wonder Jeremiah was encouraged. No wonder he stayed faithful in ministry. I mean, God spoke to him. God revealed himself in such a unique way. If only that could happen to me. But ask yourself, who has more of God's word available to them? Jeremiah or you? Who has more inspired revelation? Who has more promises, more reason for encouragement in the midst of difficulty? Us. By far, and it's not even close. We have not just Jeremiah, but all the prophets. We have the whole counsel of God, the more sure prophetic word, not only written, but bound together, easily accessible with a table of contents. In every form we could imagine, God has graciously given you and I far more than Jeremiah ever had. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And like Jeremiah, our confidence and our convictions and our hope comes not from within ourselves, but from his word. And in our lives, that word uproots our sin. It tears down our pride. It causes us to die to ourselves and to be born again, and it nourishes us as we grow in Christ. And when you share the gospel in your life with a neighbor or in a class, or in a small group, or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, what does the word do? Exactly what it has always done. God has put his power in his word. And he has promised it will never return to him void. It will have its full effect. And that was true in Jeremiah's ministry, and that is true today. So as we begin our journey through Jeremiah, this opening call will be the foundation of his ministry. And it should be the foundation of our lives as well. To persevere and serve the Lord faithfully, we must anchor our lives to the plans of a sovereign God who reigns and who knows us and who saves us by his grace. To stay faithful, we must obey and rest on the presence of a God who will never leave or forsake us. And remember that the power of our ministries and lives is not found in ourselves, but in the power of God's prophetic word. Pray with me. Lord, we rejoice in your sovereign plan and control over all of history. 
and that as we dive into Jeremiah, we are going back in time to uh, a time that was bleak, where there was a lot of rebellion, where there are national tragedies. And Lord, in the midst of all of that, we, we praise you that you always have your word going forth by those that you appoint. We thank you for the, the gift of the book of Jeremiah. Help us as we study it to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see wonderful things in your law. Lord, help us to rest this week in your presence that is with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you promise to deliver us according to your will so we can trust you and obey you. We thank you, Lord, for this time together, and would you be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.